0: We are in uh, Ecclesiastes. After uh, several months, I feel like, of kind of teasing and giving commercials and uh, spoiling my whole point in in several other sermons, and that's okay. uh, We are now going to open the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to progress through uh, this book through a series of sermons and see uh, what we can find in it as we uh, are in this series, which I've entitled Vanity Versus Eternity. Ecclesiastes, for me, is, I think, one of the most interesting books in the entire Bible. Uh, It is 12 chapters, 12 chapters of incredible insights into life and existence, and it's often nestled in this collection of books in the Old Testament that is called Wisdom Books, Uh, And and I find that interesting because Ecclesiastes is perhaps the least likely book that we would ascribe to being biblically wise. It's a frustrating book even as it's fascinating us with its word pictures and its scenarios and its uh, arguments and its logic uh, as it explains life's vanities. You know, from a literary perspective, if you just open up a book and you just try to figure out how to read it, Ecclesiastes is frustrating because from the very first paragraph, it spoils the tension. In the, in the very first couple verses, verse 2, vanity of vanities saith the preacher. He has already given you his conclusion for the rest of the book. It would be like opening up Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and you're reading Sherlock Holmes and he tells you who did it in the first paragraph. It would be kind of a very frustrating book to read because there's no more tension. There's no more uh, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And he does the same thing. From the second verse in his book that he writes, he spoils the tension. He spoils the ending, so to speak. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit hath a man, he continues, of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Or jump down to verse 14 where he continues. and He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Of course, this... (laughs) Is an interesting way to begin a sermon series, and especially to introduce a book to you. One that is full, as he says here, of vanity and vexation of spirit. It doesn't inspire much to it to say, hmm, that is, sounds like a fun book to read. And often I think that's the case with Ecclesiastes. It's frustrating from a sort of spiritual sense because uh, this entire book seems, at least from a, a first reading perhaps, give you a, uh, uh, gives voice to a lifestyle and a philosophy and a view of life that is devoid of all hope. It appears at first that, that the writer here is saying, hey, let me tell you about my meaningless life, which doesn't... Sounds very inspiring or doesn't really make you want to read it. He often doesn't seem to give much in the way of recourse. Much in the way of hope. He just presents to you vanity. Frustration. Vexation of spirits. And I think because of that. Of all the 66 books that make up your scriptures this morning. Ecclesiastes is one that has I think one of the most negative reputations. Because of its themes, because of its subjects, because of what is talked about. It's criticized for this sort of over-conversation about meaninglessness and vanity. But I would say that to dismiss Ecclesiastes because of its supposed endorsement of meaninglessness is both reactionary to just first reading the book. And it actually is, I think, is an unfaithful response to this book. Especially because the word vanity that appears, if you're reading a King James perhaps, you'll find this throughout this book. The word vanity is actually not the way we would describe it. So you're reading it in verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we would ascribe that our sort of 21st century definition. If you look up vanity in in your dictionary, it will say, the quality of being worthless or futile. And we would ascribe that definition to this word. Solomon is saying everything is worthless, worthlessness of worthlessness, everything is worthless. <laughs> which again is not exactly what he's saying. It's not entirely correct or accurate to say that that's exactly what, what the writer here is trying to convey. Actually, vanity in the Hebrew comes from a word which means breath or vapor. Something that is fleeting, something that is quick and transient. Like breathing in really cold air and you see the vapor of your breath and then it dissipates. That is the picture, it ought to be in your mind's eye when he is talking about vanity. Not necessarily worthless, but quick and fleeting. Something that doesn't have a lot of substance to it. Vanity, this same word, occurs 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think the implication is clear that there is a frustrating a very fleeting quality to life if we are all we are living for is this life under the sun as he says in verse 9 in which he says in verse 9 the thing which hath been it is that which shall be and that which is done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun So, I think a better way of looking at verse 2 is actually not just vanity or worthlessness, but say it this way frustration of frustrations. All is frustration. Life lived according to how the writer here is going to express it is frustrating. And it'll be vexing, and it'll be fleeting. And this is what this whole book examines. But I think that's also, too, why it's so critical. Ecclesiastes, I am not ashamed to say, is one of my favorite books in the scriptures. Because it is so difficult to wrap your mind around around, it, come to grips with. It forces you to think about what he is saying and how it applies and is it true. And oftentimes you'll find that it is and that there is a better truth that is being pointed towards. And that brings me to say that we are not at liberty to overlook Ecclesiastes just because we don't like what it says. (laughs) Being faithful to, as it says elsewhere in scripture, the whole counsel of God binds us to think through and grapple with this book. And such so is what I want to do in the next several weeks. And first of all, this morning, uh, I just want to kind of examine this book. Examine Ecclesiastes in a very broad sense. And so, just like, like the writer does here, just like maybe perhaps your worst mystery novel, which spoils the ending in the very first chapter... I'm going to spoil how I'm going to end the series in the very first sermon. And I think it's okay because it's not much of a spoiler alert. It's the Bible. You can read chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. You can find it out for yourself. But I want to give you an overview of kind of how I want to approach this book in a a very specific way. And to do that, I want to start out by uh, trying to kind of talk through who wrote it. If you look at Ecclesiastes, it would appear very quickly that we would assume that it's Solomon. He says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Obviously he identifies himself as a preacher, as as a son of David, as a king that has his throne in Jerusalem. And this identification has led many to assume that it's Solomon, David's son. And I think... He certainly fits all of those identifiers, and especially as you go throughout the rest of the book and you are hearing about all of this author's different pursuits and pleasure and in wisdom and knowledge and intellect and all those sorts of things, uh, those exploits uh, kind of are easily identified and linked with Solomon's reputation and what we know about him. If you read a lot of modern scholarship on the book of Ecclesiastes, though, you will probably find more often than not, that Solomon is not the sort of supposed author. I'm not going to bore you with the arguments because I'm going to say that they seem very unconvincing to me. (laughs) Very weak and very kind of immaterial. They try to go around all these different ways of looking at the book to try and say that Solomon is not the author when I think it's very clearly that he is. No, Solomon's name does not appear at all throughout this book. You will not find it. You will not find him identifying himself by his name. But I think that that's on purpose. It's on purpose, I think, because he actually uses that designation preacher. As he says in verse 1, the words of the preacher. a Designation which appears seven times throughout the book. And it comes from a Hebrew word meaning literally collector of sentences or speaker in an assembly. He's calling himself an assembler of people to hear a very specific message. You can find Solomon acting in this similar role with sort of not the same word as preacher here. But a similar Hebrew word in 1 Kings chapter 8. Where he's assembling people and he's assembling them to give them lessons or give them wisdom. And here he's assembling these people to hear I think a very very unexpected, very different sort of sermon. Which leads me to another thing that will give us a lot of context. is not just who wrote it, which I would believe is Solomon. But who is it for? Who's the audience? Because if, if, it, if it's Solomon, why is there really no mention of God? Or actually, the specific word for God, Jehovah. You won't find Jehovah in this book. You'll find only one mention of Israel. you find only a few mentions of the city, Jerusalem. Not much in the way of sort of Israel's narrative in history will you find in this book. It's not like other books which is very concerned with talking about covenants and atonements. And how they're going to be fulfilled or, and looking forward to prophecies. Not any of that at all. And I think it's because as this assembler, this collector of sentences to give to the people, as Solomon is entering into that role, he's speaking not just to his local subjects. He doesn't want to just gather his people of Israel and speak to them directly. Actually, as the assembler, he's looking to address humanity. So, very clearly, this book of Ecclesiastes is for everyone. It's written in a very general way. Solomon identifies himself in a very broad sense. So that I think that it it appeals to a much broader audience. Audience who are reading it now more than 2,000 years later. (laughs) Who are now reading the same book that he wrote and reading it and finding it very true. Actually exactly true as he wrote it. And here, he gives this incredibly unexpected sermon. A sermon which I like to call a human sermon. By which I mean this. Ecclesiastes is going, if you read all 12 chapters, you're going to find it very, very short. Very scarce in terms of language talking about the gospel. Not going to be much in the way of righteousness, uh, redemption, faith, justification, grace. You're not going to find those sort of gospel themes uh, in any of these 12 chapters. But it has, I would say, an abundance, a surplus of language that talks about how life is. The, quote, human condition. You're going to find a lot, a lot, a lot of vernacular about the way life is. The human experience, so to speak. And that's really, if you want a really succinct way of looking at Ecclesiastes, it says what is. It doesn't try to rationalize anything. It doesn't try to come to a gospel conclusion about anything. It just says what is. This is how life is. As he has experienced and witnessed it. It doesn't shy away then from some really harsh realities. Some, uh, from some uh, really vulgar uh, 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 things in life, the writer Solomon doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he kind of presses into it. He leans into these harsh vulgarities, so to speak, to bring us to a certain point. And I think that also leads to why it is presented in this unusual format. It's not a letter. It's not like the epistles where you can see him addressing a certain person and then going through an argument. There's really no narrative plot that you can find in these chapters that weaves them together. Much like the Proverbs which were mainly written by Solomon where they kind of go in and out of themes that uh, were on his mind. You can find the same here. There's no really, it's not like Paul. If you read Paul in Romans, there's a very distinct and clear argument that he goes through. It's very logically laid out. Here, Solomon is, he's not really progressing through an argument, so to speak, as he is just speaking a self-referential sermon. It is a sermon. It reads like an extended entry in Solomon's diary. Look at verse 12 where he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. You can see, I think really clearly here, just what I'm talking about is that that sort of perspective. You are given a, a look, you're able to read a king's diary about life. And not just any king, but a king who was gifted all wisdom. The most wise man who ever walked the face of this earth. You are getting a glimpse Into his journal. Seeing his thoughts sort of expressed. Articulated. As best as he could articulate them. And it's rare. It's rare for anyone to give us this sort of uh, look into their lives. This sort of honesty. This sort of vulnerability. But I think uh, that's sort of the point. This book is uncomfortably honest with the way things are. With how life is. And in that uncomfortableness, we're made to see what it's all about. Which is sort of the last, sort of uh, introductory point I want to kind of spend some time on. What is Ecclesiastes all about? What's this book all about? If you read verses 2 and verse 14 of chapter 1, you will think that it's about vanity of vanities, frustrations, and meaninglessness. But again... Let me be clear, Ecclesiastes is not an invitation to a meaningless life. It is not, sort of a license to say everything, nothing matters, so therefore I can live however I want. I can live very hedonistically and conceitedly and for myself because it doesn't matter. Everything is vanity. And that would really appear to be the case if you cherry pick some of these verses. Verses 2, verse 14, or jump over to verse 24 of chapter chapter 2, where Solomon says, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. It would appear that what he's saying is, just live it up. It doesn't matter. Everything's vanity. You have to remember their context. The context in which he wrote that entry, if I can be so bold, it comes from grasping that this, that this whole book is a journey that Solomon the king went on himself, and in that sense, he is sort of a prototype He gives us a framework for, again, looking at the human experience and the human condition. And I think that's exactly why he is so capable of fulfilling that role as the preacher, as the assembler of the people. To understand that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. As you know, what Solomon is writing to and what he is describing here in this book is what is. Life As he sees it and witnesses it. And as he experiences it. It's life post Genesis 3. Post the fall. If you go back to the very beginning. When God spoke and everything came into existence. uh, The world and the stars and the universe and animals and Adam and Eve themselves. He declared it very good. He declared everything that he made was perfect. This defined the quote human experience. There was no no Mars on this this planet or this creation. There was no sin. There was no defects. There was no flaws. There was no faults. Everything was perfect. Adam and Eve existed in this state of very goodness so to speak. They understood their purpose perfectly. They had perfect joy and pleasure, perfect happiness, perfect worship, perfect fellowship with one another and with God himself. Everything was very good as God designed and intended it. No flaws existed. Life as humans experienced it was enough. It was fulfilling. It was uh, perfect. And of course we know that this did not last. This perfection was lost. It was fractured when those first parents of ours disobeyed in Genesis 3. Plunging the rest of humanity, the rest of creation, all of existence since that day into sin. Genesis 3, Eve takes the fruit and Adam sins with her. And they both plunge humanity into sin. And now, from being an experience defined by perfection, the experience now that we as humans have is defined by sin. We cannot get away from it. We cannot escape it. This moment fractured existence there was a blemish now in all of the beauty that god had made there was a frustration in all of the meaning because what was very good is now no longer very good it is all sorrow as he says in verses uh, verse 13 in sore travail look what he says ecclesiastes 1:13 i gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven this sore travail Hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith? And in Genesis 3, verses 15 and 16, as as God the Father is laying down sort of the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision, he talks about sorrow. He mentions it several times (laughs) that a life that was full and, and, and enough is now going to be full of sorrow and frustration. And every person who has ever lived since that day has been born into sin. Has been born into a life that is defined by sorrow. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. And when we are born into this life. You didn't choose one day to become a sinner. You were born into sin because of what Adam and Eve brought into this world. Possessed by the same notion that they uh, themselves were doomed by. You go, uh, actually, let's go there. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 really quick. I want you to see this. Because this, I think, is so pivotal for for understanding what Ecclesiastes leans into. You have Genesis 3 this infamous chapter where we are given the history of Adam and Eve's fall and their disgrace from the garden of eden notice it says verse 1 now the serpent was more subtle than all or, excuse me than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and he said unto the woman yea hath god said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden and the woman said unto the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And we know the rest is history, so to speak. You have to understand here. This is the moment where all of the perfection was broken and shattered. Why and how? Because of that temptation which the serpent gives unto them in verse 5. That this tree possesses wisdom wherein they can be like God. Where they can be as gods. See this is the defining sort of paradigm of sin. It makes God unnecessary. Sin is a you uh, forcing God out of his rightful place as sovereign God and creator and owner of your life. And it's you putting yourself into that place and declaring we can be our own God. We can make our own purpose. We can find our own joy. We can find our own meaning. We can make our own lives. We can live lives the way that we want to live them. It's the defining uh, 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 paradigm of sin. We live for ourselves. It's not just millennials. Every generation has been a me generation. Declaring that we can do it better than those who went before us. And we have the answers. And we don't need God. We just need reason or wisdom or rationality or logic. This is now the default setting of the human heart. When you are born you come into this world. Exactly as our first parents were deceived into thinking that we can be like a God. That we don't need someone telling us what to do. And yet, the frustrating part is the fact that this is not how we were designed. (laughs) This goes against all of created design as God spoke us into existence. He designed us for his glory. He designed us to live in the joy and the perfection of Eden. That was the design. That should have been the default setting and sin changed it. We were made for God. And Solomon hints at this. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and look at verse 11. He hints at this idea, this notion that we were created for something uh, eternal. And look at verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart. So that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. That phrase there, he set the world in their heart, literally means he put an awareness of eternity into man's soul. Whether you believe in Jehovah God or not, there is an awareness that this life is not all that there is. There's an awareness of eternity that humans are born with. They're born with this notion. That this life is not all that there is. That's why any single religion that has ever been on the face of this planet has always dealt with some sort of afterlife that we are ascribing unto, that we are trying to get to, that we are trying to see, yes, even earn our way into. It's because there's the world in the soul, there's a God sized hole in the heart of every human person who has ever lived. And God put it there. Why? Because He made us for His glory. And only God can fill a God sized hole. Only something that is eternal can fill a, a hole that has eternity as its bottom. This brings me to this incredibly incisive uh, paragraph from a French mathematician and physicist who was popular in the 1600s. He was also a theologian. His name was Blaise Pascal. He says this. There was once in man a true happiness of which there now remained to him only the mark and empty trace. Which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. But these are all inadequate Because the infinite soul can only be filled by an equally infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God Himself. This, to me, is the crux of this whole book, it's the crux of human nature. Every man who has ever lived on the face of this planet has been striving and dying to try and fill that hole that exists inside of them with something other than God. It has to be something other than God. They go to pleasure or popularity or prestige or money or power or fame. You can fit anything into that sentence that you want. And this has defined human existence. Filling That void with something that cannot be filled there. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't fit and it's not designed to. We go to something, uh, we try to look for something timeless in a world that is fleeting, that changes. We try to go and find something eternal in a life that is temporary. We try to find something fulfilling in a life that is frustrating. Because we're going to the wrong source. We're going to the wrong place. And Solomon is articulating that very notion throughout this book. That this search that he goes on, he identifies it as a search after wisdom. <laughs> the search has defined everyone who's lived, and they found it just the same. That lived for this life under the sun. It is frustrating. It is unfulfilling. And that's the point. They were never meant to fill you. The things that God designed for us to enjoy were not meant to fill us. And this is what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's not about an invitation to a meaningless life. It's not a a way in which we can avoid any responsibility. It's not a a book that's about trying to not be ambitious because it doesn't matter. Actually, I think it's about uh, coping with the world as we know it. A life, yes, that is wrapped with ruin and sin. There's a divinely inspired sermon on how to have faith and fulfillment in an existence where that is hard to find. I think it's a sermon that allows us to realize that life without God is like trying to sprint on a treadmill. (laughs) You're exerting a lot of energy, going nowhere. Really not accomplishing much. You're right where you started. But you sprinted really hard. You ran really fast. You didn't get anywhere. It was vanity. You never found what you were looking for. And that's what Ecclesiastes is pointing us to. That without God, him, out of the equation, it's like trying to find faith. Faith. Trying to find something fulfilling in a world that is anything but. See the under, the in-between message of Ecclesiastes is one that I love, because it's about finding faith in a world like we see it, in a world that's full of oppression and hatred and violence and wickedness. Where's the hope in what we see every day on the headline news? You could open up CNN. God bless you if you do. And you would be able to say, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. You could open up anything that you want that tells you about what's going on in our world. You would come to the same conclusion that Solomon did. That his life appears. Worthless, it appears vanity, it appears frustrating. What this book gives us, I think, is it points us to a faith that is firm and fervent. A faith that we can stand on, that we can sink our teeth into. And no, let me dispel sort of any sort of excitement that you might have. It doesn't give us a secret formula to rid us, rid us of life's Frustrations. You, you cannot read this book, and you won't be given a magical incantation to be able to avoid all of the madness and mayhem and the mess that defines existence in 2020. Sorry. Because whether you believe in Jesus or not, that's the human experience. But what Ecclesiastes will do... It will help you to find your way in the midst of all that mess. In the midst of all that madness and that mayhem. And the confusion and the news stories. And the people telling you what's going to happen. It reveals. This book reveals that our lives are way more broken than I think we often would ever realize. But I think what it does do also. Is show us that there's something better worth living for. And in fact... That phrase, better than, it appears 23 times in this book. 23 times it appears that there's something better than. Better than what's here. Go to chapter 3, verse 22. He says, wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than a man shall rejoice in his own works. For that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? chapter uh, 4 verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both, than both the hands. With, full with travail and vexation of spirit. And on and on he goes. All of which I think reveal this. That there is something. Actually I'll say it this way. There is someone better worth living for. In the midst of life's frustrations, there is someone who can give you fulfillment. Who can give you peace and joy and pleasure. Who can give you what your soul craves. Who can fill the eternity that's in your soul. And his name is God. Such is what leads him to that incredible conclusion in chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. He comes to the end of all his journeying. He comes to the end of all of his searching after wisdom. And trying to decipher how to make sense of life's frustrations. And he says this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You want to know how to make sense of of the, uh, of the injustice that you see? You want to know how to make sense of, of all of the travesties that we witness? Fear God and keep his commandments. Or as that uh, hymn says, trust and obey. Trust that God is the one who is over it all and obey him in faith. There's no other duty that we have as men and women here in the 21st century than this right here. This dispels all sorts of notions. That we have to go and find what we are looking for. Trust God and obey his word. This is why why I love Ecclesiastes. It is, it, it is, it's a commentary on life as we know it. Yes, all of the travesties and all of it. He talks about it all throughout these 12 chapters. But he also gives us this, there's this tension that exists throughout this book. That says that this life as we know it is not how God planned it. And that's okay because he has promised to fix it. The answer to life's vanities, life's frustrations is not found in removing them. Is not found in trying to pretend that they don't exist. As Christians, we aren't ostriches who put our heads in the sand and try to pretend that bad stuff doesn't exist. That there is corruption, that there is uh, uh, all sorts of perversion and injustice that exists. We don't try and cover our eyes and block our ears and just shout and pretend that it's not there. It is there. And the beauty and the hope that is presented throughout Ecclesiastes is the fact that we have hope because of God's presence in all of life's frustrations. In the midst of all of that, God is there. And his further promise to fix all of life's frustrations. And this is where the good news really comes about Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 12. There is a fascinating verse that Jesus declares, one which I think is very, very insightful to the rest of the wisdom of Solomon as we see it in Ecclesiastes. Notice verse 42 of chapter 12. Jesus here is speaking, and he says, This, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. You want to know who the greater one than Solomon was? It was Jesus himself. He is the true and better Solomon who hasn't just been made to go through life's frustrations. He has come to rectify them and redeem them and solve them and fix them. He is the one who says that he is going to make all things new. All of the impression that we see, the injustice that we see, the violence, the hatred, the ridicule, all of that is bound up in him, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the one by whom all of this vulgar and corrupt wisdom of Ecclesiastes, all of it is then transfigured into the hope of grace. That Jesus is the one who settles all of life's frustrations. He is the one in whom joy that is everlasting is found. He is the one who gives peace and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. As one writer says, Christ is the gain that the world cannot provide. He is the answer to all of the predicaments and problems that we see. And that's not just some cliche thing. That Jesus is the answer. It's Jesus is the answer. He is the one. The one through whom uh, we find wisdom and hope and faith. Which Brings us to an incredible, the incredible good news of the gospel. Is that when Jesus says he has come to redeem man and reconcile all things to himself. That means all of creation. If you go to Romans 8, you don't have to go there. It talks about how this creation is groaning. Groaning and crying out for redemption. And restoration. Restoration. And that Jesus is the one who is going to fulfill that. You see, Jesus' redemption restores all of the universe, all of the cosmos, back to the joy of Eden. It comes through Jesus. And there's, one, there's coming a day when that is going to be fulfilled. When the joy of Eden is going to be, yes, once again, the human experience. Because we will be with him. And we will be like him. And we will no longer ever be separated from him. In the new heavens. In the new earth. This is what this is going towards. Leading towards. I know I've spoiled the ending. But I didn't want to leave you each week with. Vanity and vexation of spirit. <laughs> if you just read through Ecclesiastes. That's what you'll get. But I want you to see Jesus is the answer to all of life's frustrations. He is the one who enables and empowers and encourages us and inspires us to continually fearing God and obeying Him. He is the true and better Solomon. He is the wisdom of God for you and for me. He is the one through whom we make sense of this frustrating life. Let us pray.